So this week we uh, continue our sermon series looking at the Sermon on the Mount and, and what we are calling Kingdom Priorities. You know, if we're going to serve God and we're going to walk in His kingdom, then we should probably value what He values, right? We should try to think how He thinks. Uh, that's kind of the goal of becoming a disciple. Uh, one of the, the, you know, in the ancient world, one of the characteristics of being a disciple of a rabbi was that they tried to pick up everything they could from their teacher. Okay, a disciple would literally walk behind his rabbi, and if his rabbi had a limp, you would see these guys following behind him walking with a limp. Because they wanted to be exactly like their rabbi. And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's telling his disciples, look, this is what life really is. And so he hearkens back to the law several times, and he says, you've heard it said. I mean, they know the law. They, they are you know, Jew, uh, first century Jewish believers uh, in, in God, they would know the Old Testament like the back of their hand, okay? They had most of it memorized. And so it wasn't that he was bringing some kind of new radical teaching. It's that he was telling them, here's what this really means. If you're going to understand it correctly, here's how you should be thinking about it. And when Jesus taught like that, the Bible says that he taught as one having authority. He didn't teach as the scribes or the Pharisees or the teachers of the law saying, we think it means this. Here's my interpretation of this. This is what we think it could be. We think this is more important than this. And they did that. They tried to rank everything in importance. Jesus came along and he says, you know what? I know you've heard this, but here's what this is really about. Here is the truth. And it was way more radical than anyone imagined. And it's not that it was a new teaching. It's that he revealed the heart of God behind the commandments. Now, how many of you ever heard the word and understand the word precept? The precepts of God. When I was called to ministry, I had an encounter that... I, I am convinced to this day, I don't know if the man was actually an angel, but he was definitely a messenger from God in a moment. Because the morning I surrendered to ministry, uh, I left church, and I went and filled my car up with gas, and I got out and I started filling up, and an elderly gentleman stepped out of his car to get gas across from me. And he looked at me and says, did you have a good morning at church? Those were his first words to me. Did you have a good morning at church? And I said, well, yes, sir, I did, actually. I surrendered my life to preach the gospel today. I surrendered to ministry. And he just got all kinds of excited. Oh, that's fantastic. That's, that's wonderful. You do that. And then he said something I will never forget. He says, you know what nobody preaches on today? The precepts of God. I was 17 years old. No, I was 18 years old, sorry. I was 18 years old. I had no idea what he meant. He says, but nobody teaches on the precepts of God anymore. If you will commit yourself to preaching on the precepts of God, you'll never go wrong. That is great news. I pray the best for you. And our conversation was over. I thought, what does that even mean? I thanked him, but I thought, I have no idea what that means. So I went back and looked it up. And it still didn't make a lot of sense. But as I continued to investigate it, what it what it meant 
is that God gives commands, but if we're going to understand the precepts, we've got to understand why He would give that command. What is the meaning behind it? Because it shows what God values. Why would He give the commandment, do not murder? Why would He give that? Because murder is bad? Well, of course it's bad. We know that. But why would He give the command? Because God values life. The precept behind the command is that God values life. And so, in Scripture, when we get to commands like do not commit adultery, do not lust, do not commit fornication, we look behind it, look at the precept, and see what is it that God values in this. And that's where, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew 5, 27 through 30, Jesus literally throws down the gauntlet for something that what in that day and in our day was 100% applicable, was needed, and, and absolutely would have been revolutionary even then. He says in Matthew 5, 27-30, it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Dan did a wonderful job of talking about anger. Y'all agree? Wow, man, brother, I'm sorry. I tried, man. I, I tried. I threw it out there. <laughs> right? He did a wonderful job preaching about anger. And t- okay. And, and what did Jesus say on that? He, he said, if you harbor hatred in your heart, you are guilty of what? Murder. Now, how many of us are like, I ain't killed anyone. I'm not guilty of murder. Except when we get to the idea of the precepts of God, what lies behind the commandment and why it's there, he's saying it's the same thing. In the kingdom of God, God's so committed to life and relationships and love that to harbor anger and hatred is the same thing. You've killed a relationship. You've broken something that it can't exist in the kingdom of God that way. And so now he goes to another realm and he says the exact same principle applies. And he says, if you lust, you might as well have committed adultery. It's the same thing. It's the same place in the heart. Because let me tell you something. All of humanity, not just our culture, but all of humanity for all time, we love technicalities. Right? Well, technically... You know what? God's not impressed with our technicalities. Because if we're going to get into that with God, you know what He's going to say? Well, technically you sinned. And I don't deal with that. Okay? No sin in my presence. So technically you're still wrong. However you want to justify your behavior. And so Jesus comes along here and He teaches and He says, you've heard us said you shall not commit adultery. Now, understand in that in that culture at that time, there were so many loopholes that the elder, the, the scribes and, and the teachers of the law had created for this commandment 
you might as well have almost just torn it out and said, you know what, we're not even going to follow it. And we'll get into some of more of those next week when he starts talking about divorce. But understand, the next three sections that we're going to talk about when he says lust, divorce, and then he talks about oaths, not taking, you know, let your yes be yes. All three of these are very much related at the heart level of who God wants us to be. And it starts with the intent of our looks, of our eyes. What are we doing? Because what, he, what we've got to understand is that lust itself is an unquenchable fire. And I use the, the word fire because what does fire do? It consumes and it destroys. That's all it can do. It can't do anything else. It consumes and destroys. And that is what lust is. And that's why Jesus says, look, I know you've heard it said don't commit adultery and some of you think that you're free on this technicality. But He says, look, if, if, if you have lustful glances all the time, your, your heart's already there. And that kind of heart is incompatible with God's kingdom. Now, in the Greek, of course, it's the word epithumia. It means strong desire. But, you know, sometimes that word strong desire maybe is, is a, we just don't quite understand. It's a desire that controls a person. It's a desire that a person bows to in obedience to the desire. Now, think about that. Now, are you starting to see why this is incompatible with God's kingdom? When we bow and obey something, what are we doing? We're worshiping. And so, without saying it, what Jesus has done is He's pointed us to the commandment that's actually being broken. When we get into technicalities, of, oh no, I haven't actually committed adultery, but you know, lustful heart and lustful thoughts and all these things all the time, what is it that we're actually guilty of? Idolatry. We're worshiping something else. We are giving our devotion and our obedience to a desire instead of to God who deserves it. And so the, the sin is across the board on this. There, there's no you know, technicality of getting out of it. And so what we, we have to look is picture lust as a fire that survives and grows only because it is fed. Now, I know out here a lot of people, you know, you campfires, bonfires, fire pits, all that, you know. Well, we men, what do we like to do? Well, fire's dying. I got to throw, you know, 19 more logs on it. You know, we, we got to poke the fire. We, I mean, right? We just, that's what we do. Okay, we're pyromaniacs. But we know that we have to feed that fire to keep it going. And that is exactly what lust is. is an unquenchable fire in the human mind and the human spirit that has to be fed to continue to exist. And it will demand to be fed even at the expense of everything else. Now, I want you to compare this because what did Jesus say earlier? He said in verse 8 of chapter 5, Blessed are the what? Pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
You see, we have a contrast going now that Jesus started off. Remember, I said the Beatitudes were the heading. They're the umbrella that everything falls under. And so he says, blessed are the pure in heart. You're the ones that are going to see God. And then it's like he comes over and says, and so let's talk about that purity thing. Let's talk about that now. If you have lust in your heart and it's a way of life for you, you're guilty of breaking the commandments. You are not pure in heart and you're not going to see God. And it's a, listen, he throws it out there. If, if, if I'm reading this correctly, this is one of the first times Jesus mentions hell. And he tells them, this is an unquenchable fire in your life. You got to get rid, you can't have this. And he's, we'll get into that in a second, but he says you are in danger of hellfire because of this. And so Jesus does not hedge this at all, and so we need to take it absolutely as seriously as he does. And so what he says here, though, is very important because he says everyone who looks at a woman or just looks, he says, with lustful intent. Intent of the heart is huge in this because this has been... Listen, my, my dissertation for my doctorate was on this very topic. And so my mind's running like a million miles an hour right now trying not to overdo you with information. <laughs> but it's the intent of the heart that God is looking at here. And so it is a heart issue. It is not simply a matter of technicality. Did I do this? Did I not do this? He is saying, what is the condition of of your heart does your heart harbor this fire if it does you're in trouble you are out of the will of God within this and you you have to take whatever steps are necessary but you see this has been preached incorrectly in the church and in the world in so many ways that that it falls into one category. Either we ignore it completely and put our head in the sand, which has been the church's response to, to issues of sexuality and sexual sin for many, many years. We just ignore it and we don't talk about that. Or we treat it like it's all bad. It's bad. We just don't. No, it's, it's bad. Okay? God is ashamed of this. And that's, that also is wrong. Listen, can we agree right now that God created us all the way He created us and He's not ashamed of any of it? In fact, I want you to think about what is the very first command given to mankind in Scripture. The very first one. What does He say? Be fruitful and multiply. So we're hardwired a certain way. And it's not going away. Now, we need not be ashamed of that. Where does shame enter into the picture? Shame entered into the picture because of sin. And so what happens is the pendulum always seems to overcorrect. And so you have the world out here that they're always going to get it wrong. Trust me on that, okay? The world will always get it wrong. The world is always going to say, hey, do whatever you want, whatever, it doesn't matter. And we see the confusion rampant in our society right now. It is rampant. We see gender confusion, everything. It's just, listen, sexual sin destroys a person. We're going to talk about that in a second. But the church has got to get this correct and say, look, there is, there is an arena for this that is natural, that is good, that is God-ordained, and that's what God wants. And so long as things are kept within marriage, the way God intended is a blessing. 
And we need not be ashamed. But for some reason, we've kind of missed on both fronts in this, this arena. And now, Paul gives us an example to think about with this. Okay? And he uses the stomach and food and hunger as an illustration for it. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 14, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. What he is saying right there is that there are natural desires that God has given. Now, how many of you, when it's time to eat, do you feel guilty? I don't. Now, that is a God-given desire, right? He wants us to eat. He made us so we have to eat. That's just what it is. Now, did God have to give us taste buds? Why did He give us taste buds? He, he says, I want you to enjoy this. Our God is, a, is not a, a God of like, somebody somewhere is having fun and I need to find it and stop it. That is not God. Okay, that's not what He does. He gave us taste buds, and he says, I want you to enjoy this. I want this to be a pleasurable experience for you when you eat. Now, what is the difference between that desire and gluttony? Gluttony is where I am driven by that desire to eat at an unhealthy level. When I don't... It, it, gluttony is the, uh, the, the eating form of lust, you see, gluttony is when you're satisfied, but you just don't stop because, hey, I don't need to. I just want more. I want more. I want more. What is that? It's lust. I want, I want, I want, I want. That's what lust is. And that's why I say lust is an unquenchable fire. There will never be enough of anything to satisfy it. And Paul uses the illustration of food for the exact same thing. He says, look, don't be dominated by any desires, but enjoy life the way God intended. The misuse, gluttony, does not negate the legitimate use of food, right? You know, somebody sins or, or they become gluttonous, they don't suddenly renounce all food and say, well, food is evil. It's not the food's fault. It's the condition of the heart. And so I want us to think about if, if lust then is this unquenchable fire that will literally consume a person and kill them, okay? It will take everything that they have. It will consume their mind. It will consume their heart. It will take over their being. Then we need to understand that this battle is personal. And I mean personal at every level, Okay? And Satan knows this. Our enemy knows that this battle is one that will destroy a person's sense of identity. They will completely lose their sense of self and may not ever regain it because of this. Now, as Christians, we are called to find our identity in Christ. 
We are not to find our identity in, in what politics we follow. We're not to find our identity in how much money we make. We're not to find our identity in anything except for Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says that, doesn't he? In Galatians, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. We find our identity in Him. But what happens with sexual sin is that we start to find our identity in experiences. We start to find our identity in other places and it starts to destroy our identity. And we literally lose our sense of self. And this is biblical. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, the Apostle Paul says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what is that against his own body? That means against yourself, against your own identity. That means you will lose yourself, literally, who you are within this. Now, can you see why Jesus said for the first time, do what's necessary to get this out of your life because you are in danger of hellfire. See, this is important. He says he sins against his own body. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So you have these two sides of this. He says, look, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your identity should be drawn from God himself, not from this. He says, you are not your own. What is that an image of? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Who was bought with a price? A slave. And a slave gets their identity from their master. We were purchased by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Our identity is found in Him. But to sin sexually, to be caught in the sin of lust, will strip that identity from a person and they won't know who they are. It literally is an assault on one's own soul. Is it any wonder that Satan puts so much effort in making sure that sexual sin is a part of the world that we live in? Because he knows the damage that it will cause. He knows the families it will destroy. He knows what will happen. And he knows all he has to do is set that fire and just let it burn. Just make it burn and just step back and watch what happens. And so, on the other side of this, it is an attack on identity, whereas God, understanding God's ways and God's blessings, all sexuality is to be practiced within the confines of covenant marriage, where what happens? It says the husband and wife become one flesh, which means there's a sharing of identities there. The wife's identity becomes a part of the husband. The husband becomes a part of the wife. And the covenant of marriage can handle the weight of what is happening there. You see, it's not lust, then it's relationship. And God is in the mix blessing it. And so their identity is, is given to the spouse, but the spouse gives their identity back and they hold each other up. And instead of destroying them, it makes them one. And we're not just talking the physical act, we're talking spiritually, emotionally, 
relationally, they hold each other up and it becomes the glue that God intended for a marriage. You see, Satan knows that's why he attacks the family because he doesn't want families strong on this front. He doesn't want husbands and wives with shared identities in Christ holding each other up, supporting each other. Because when they do that, guess what? This is Proverbs said, a threefold cord, us, you know, husband, wife, Christ, is not easily broken. And so I want you to understand that the more we are in the will of God, the more we know who we are. The more we're out of the will of God, the less we know. The more we are into sexual sin, it just shreds our identity. And that's why Paul says that this is a sin against your own body. I find it interesting. He says every other sin. Look at that. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. That means there is something unique about this sin. It is the only one that will shred your identity the way it does. It is the only one that will hurt you in the manner in which it does. It is the only one with the power to touch your inner being like that. The only one. And so you can guess when we start making technicalities. You know, oh, I didn't, I did technically, I didn't. That's why Jesus comes along. He says, you know what? No, no. If your eye goes there, your heart's already there, you're guilty. And he's not doing this to condemn people. He's doing this to free people. To understand the heart level and to understand the importance of what this means. And in fact, he takes it at such a level that he says there can be no compromise with this. No compromise. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, does that seem a little extreme to some people in here? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, obviously, if this is talking about a heart issue, cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye is not going to solve the problem. Let me say that again. Cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye is not going to solve a heart problem of sexual sin and lust. So what is Jesus doing? He's using hyperbole, saying you go to whatever lengths you got to go to to remove this sin from your life. And it's going to feel extreme. In fact, it's going to feel so extreme that it's going to feel like, now get this, it's going to feel like you're losing a part of yourself. Now why is that? Because our identity got all wrapped up in this thing that wasn't us. But it happened. 
and our identities get wrapped up in this. It gets connected to us. And so as we start to pull it free, guess what? We're going to feel like we're losing a part of ourselves with this. We're going to think, how can I live? I'm going to be miserable. My life is going to be over. I mean, it, trust me, it's going to happen. And that's why Jesus says, be prepared to take drastic, drastic steps to rid yourself of this. And so he has to go hyperbole all the way to the point of saying, gouging out, tearing out eyes, and throwing it away. Now, why is that? Well, he's saying, find the source and separate yourself from it. Be willing to get surgical. Okay, and I mean this. Be willing to get surgical in your own heart and mind to find the answer as to why this sin is flourishing. Because when it gets attached to our identities the way it does, man, it gets complex. Okay? And, and I mean this. This is, from, this is from three years of research on my part working on my dissertation. That I, You know, it's one of those the rabbit hole went way deeper than I thought when I started working on it. And by the end, I'm like, is this ever going to end? The, it, it gets so mixed up in a person's identity that many times the root cause is not what you think it is. I've counseled several, uh, several young men, college-age men and others, uh, getting through uh, pornographic ad addictions. And without fail, every time we really started to get to the root problem, Guess what? It had nothing to do with sex. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with being bullied. It had to do with bad parenting. It had to do with all... And guess what? They learned to escape and never learned how to deal and grow in their identity learning how to deal with these problems. They learned to take what I call in counseling sessions the off-ramp instead of going on down the road of life. And they learned to do that, and they did it so many times it became trapped and tangled into their identity and their heart, and now they had no idea why they couldn't control this. And as we started untangling it, yeah, they had to take drastic steps in their life, but once they did, they started to find freedom, and they were like, wow, this is amazing. For the first time in my life, I feel free. And what happens is we, we start trying to look and just stop the fruit and we don't want to address the root. And everybody here knows if you pull a weed out of the ground and don't get the root, what happens? It just comes back. And a lot of times you spread it by doing that. More of them start coming up. You're like, man, I just pulled all these weeds. Why are there more of them? Because you have to kill the root. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Is he says you have got to kill the root. you got to take whatever steps are necessary. And I mean it. You find counseling. You get accountability. You do what you got to do to remove this from your life so that you can see clearly. Because it will destroy you. Okay, let me say that as clearly as I can. If this sin goes unchecked in a person's life, it will destroy you. It's not a matter of if it will destroy you. It is just a matter of when. It will destroy you. And in fact, this is such an issue. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. This is his advice, okay? Flee. Run. 
Don't get involved in this stuff. Now, don't you find it interesting that everywhere else in Scripture we hear about taking our stand against the devil's schemes and putting on the armor of God and and be ready for the day of battle and, I mean, all of that, you hear it. But when it comes to this one particular sin, what does the Bible tell us to do? Run. Just get out. Run. Don't. No no discussion. No, No debate. No trying to figure it out. Just get away. Because Paul knows how much it attaches to a person's identity. You see, God wired us to lose this battle in a certain way called marriage. Because He wants us addicted to our spouses. And He's not going to change that. He's not going to take that away because that's His good creation where He wants a husband and wife addicted to each other. And Satan knows this, and so he knows if he can twist it and he can grab hold of that sense of identity that God put in us and attach it to something else, that we've just plugged ourselves into poison. And all it will do is kill us. And so Paul simply says, flee, just run. Don't, don't, don't give it a, a second thought. Don't give anything a chance. Just run. How many of you in here are familiar with the story of... Joseph in the Old Testament and Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph is one of the guys in the Old Testament that's like, yes, emulate him in every way. The guy was so full of faith and full of grace. And man, his life took horrible turn after horrible turn. And he just kept looking to God and just kept doing the right thing. And eventually God blesses him. But there is this moment in Joseph's life where he is a servant. Okay, he was free, gets sold into slavery, he's working for this guy Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife sees him and she says, hey, you're pretty attractive, I'd like to uh, spend some more time with you behind my husband's back. And what was Joseph's response? He said, how can I sin against my master and against my God? And he runs. He just runs. He runs so fast he leaves his coat behind (laughs) Now, then it's used against him, and you know, bad things happen after that. But you know what? His heart was pure. And what did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. And everywhere Joseph went, he seemed to see God. He, 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 he prospered in everything that he did. Even when he was in prison, he prospered. God prospered him. Doesn't that seem weird? He gets sent to prison for something he didn't do, and yet God prospers him while he's in prison, so much so that the guards like leave and they put him in charge. They're like, yeah, we can trust you. You you just run the place. We have to run from it. And now, running from sexual sin in our world today, I want you to think of what that's going to entail. What is that going to require? Are we going to be strange compared to the world? Yeah. We're we're going to seem odd. You see, there there is so much in our culture today that we've just accepted that God is saying, no, don't accept that. Now, that doesn't mean that we can go on a crusade and make everybody else in the world change too and get rid of it. No, that means we ourselves hold ourselves to a higher standard. Okay, in the unbelieving world, sexual immorality is always going to be present. Okay, go ahead and just lock that away in your mind. It's always going to be present in the unbelieving world. The early church, Paul, and the early church after that that lived in the Roman Empire, trust me, their world was extremely immoral. 
okay, extremely, and yet families manage to raise godly children and godly families in that culture. Why? Because they rejected the culture and just followed Christ the way they should, the way they were supposed to. Now, they weren't perfect, and nobody's perfect, but this is an issue that has to be taken seriously. And when Jesus comes along and He says, hey, if you just look with lustful intent, your heart's already there. we got to take that seriously. A- amen? we got to take it seriously. And it's not because Jesus is just looking to throw condemnation at people. He's looking to protect people. He's saying, in my kingdom, this kind of heart condition isn't even going to exist. It's not going to be there. And so for my people living in this world right now, this needs to be one of our priorities. Because he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now that's a wonderful promise we heard in the Beatitudes, isn't it? That's a wonderful promise. But it takes on new life when we get to where Jesus unpacks it here and says this is what that means. This is what purity means. It means that we don't follow the course of the world. It means that we take whatever steps are necessary. We do not compromise with this. And we do whatever we have to do to separate ourselves from it. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for today. And God, I just thank You for each and every person in here today. And God, I just ask You, Lord, to put Your protection, Your hedge of protection around each person in here, God. Help us all to to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God, that the purity in our own heart, God, would would mirror Yours. God, that we wouldn't look at technicalities, that we wouldn't rationalize, but God, that we would simply come to You seeking freedom, seeking forgiveness, seeking purity. God, whoever in here right now is struggling in this area of their life, God, I pray that You first give them hope, God. Do not let shame or pride or fear keep them from finding healing. God, just open their eyes, all of our eyes, to Your grace, Your love, Your acceptance. The healing that You will bring. Father, we just pray Your Spirit would do the work that only You can do. God, we can't heal ourselves. But Holy Spirit, we invite You to begin the process, God, that we can cooperate with Your grace in taking steps of obedience and find healing and wholeness. God, it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.